There's a lot of information about Jesus. And some of it came from his own lips. Um, if you've got a red letter edition of the New Testament, you understand what he said about um, what he did. He told us about where he went and why he did it. He told us how he viewed problems. He even told us why he died and how he was raised from the dead. But there's only one place in the New Testament where Jesus ever told us what he was like. That is, there's only one place where he kind of unveiled his temperament and kind of bared his heart as to what he was like. It's found in the 11th chapter of the book of Matthew, if you'll turn. And, begins reading at ver- and begin reading at verse 28 of the 11th chapter of Matthew. And this is what he said about what he is like. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for here is what I'm like. I am gentle and humble in heart. The word gentle is the word praus in the Greek. It means strength under control. It is um, translated meekness in the King James, the real Bible. And it is, it is literally a, the power that's under perfect control. It's like a horse that's been broke has the same strength as it had before, and yet it will assume the burden of a little child, never hurt it, because all of this power is under absolute, perfect control. He said, I am prouse, I am gentle. And he said, I am humble in heart. The etymology of that word is bending low, and when it's applied to a servant, it says, in essence, I am one who bends low to serve. It's like a servant bending down to fix a meal or bending down to do the laundry. And so Jesus said, if you are heavy laden, if you are weary, and if you have a problem, you can come to me. And when you come to me, you'll find one of absolute strength under control. And I am bending low to serve you. And he models this in the New Testament. And the modeling of it is found in this 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. And this marvelous model of Jesus bending low to serve is a powerful illustration of what he said about himself. As a matter of fact, I read some time ago that a group of Chinese were presented with the Gospel. They were given a New Testament. And as they read through the New Testament, they were reading about, they were reading through this story of this wonderful man. But when they came to the 13th chapter of John, they were all moved to commit their life to him because they thought to themselves, if this man, this powerful man, who could snap his fingers and annihilate all of us, this man fleshing God, 
If he would bend down low to wash someone's feet, he is worthy of my life. Now we need to give some background of this 13th chapter, what happened and where it happened. It's one of those chapters that just really comes to life just by reading it. Really, you need no exp- it, need no, it needs no exposition, it just needs to be read in the narrative. But after all, you pay me to you know, exposit it, <laughs> exegete it, so I want to do a little of it. But just to let the narrative come alive, it happened on just before the feast of the Passover, and there were 13 men involved, Jesus and 12 men that He loved. Now what was the feast of the Passover? It was the highest festival in Jewish tradition and Jewish belief. I tried to think of some holiday that we celebrate that might be comparable to the feast of the Passover. The closest I could come was to thank was Thanksgiving. A holiday that we celebrate once a year in which we uh, come together and remember the sacrifices of people who sought their freedoms. And the, past, and the uh, Thanksgiving celebration revolves around to me usually the same thing. Turkey and dressing and corn on the cob and pumpkin pie. And the Passover was a celebration of a people who had come out of bondage and they had a, a, a festivity, a festival that revolved around a meal called the Passover meal. There were four ingredients of that meal, always the same. They ate a lamb, not a turkey, and it reminded them, it symbolized the lamb that was slain for their redemption. And there was this strange mixture, a kind of a sauce called a herosheth. Is that pretty close to it, Andre? A herosheth. Now, Herosheth was a kind of sauce. It was a mixture. You remember when Jesus dipped the sop and handed it to Judas? He dipped, it, he dipped the bread in the Herosheth. It was a kind of a mixture that reminded them of the mortar that held the bricks together that the Jews built and made as slaves in bondage. And they ate bitter herbs to remind them of the bitter experiences of bondage and the wilderness wandering that was before them. And unleavened bread, that is bread without yeast, it was a hard uh, bread that was much like crackers. And all the people got around as families and as they celebrated this meal, they were reminded of the bondage from which they had come unto Moses. And they were never to forget the night the death angel came through the city. And as he made his way through the city, the death angel, if he saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, then the death angel passed by that house, and that meant redemption for those who were under the sign of the blood. So these 13 men met in this upper room, just a little room somewhere in Jerusalem, and it included Jesus and the 12 he loved, even Judas he knew would soon betray him. How could a man set at meal with Judas, even offer him the sop which represented the uh, recognition of the honored guest at the meal? Well, he was gentle and humble of heart. And in the midst of all this festivity, Jesus rose from supper 
It would be like when you were in your Thanksgiving meal and everybody was celebrating and you were sitting around together as a family and then all of a sudden your father got up to do something that was totally unrelated to the meal. He got up and he got a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Now there are two reasons why he washed their feet. One reason he washed their feet was because they had proud hearts. I want you to look just for a second at chapter 22 of Luke's Gospel. They had proud hearts. Verse 14 of chapter 22 in Luke's Gospel reads like this, And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him, So there you are, they're reclining at the table. Verse 24, And there arose also a dispute among them as to which of them would be regarded, was regarded to be the greatest. Oh, come on now, guys, not here, not now. They still have their you know, eyes on themselves, and they're still grumbling and fussing about who's going to be the greatest. They're still hung up on themselves. I mean, how long is it going to take before these men take their eyes off themselves? They had proud hearts, and they had dirty feet. Now, in those days, there was no uh, paving, of course, just dirt roads, and these men walked everywhere, and they had they in sandals. And when it rained, seldom rained, but when it did, it literally became a bog. And so every road and every alley and every street was a dusty trail or a muddy bog. And when you came into a house, if there was a group of people, the host always provided at the door this large container of water and a servant to wash the feet of his guests. But if there was just a family gathering together, that that event was done, the washing of feet was done by the father until his children, his sons, were able to do it. And then they took turns just watching, observing the modeling of their father, washing the feet of his family, and the sons would take turns doing it. But in this upper room, now watch this, nobody is willing to do it. They're willing to fight over the throne, but not the towel. They want to reign, but they don't want to serve. And so they're all reclining together around. Now, when they sat at a meal in those days, they didn't sit around a table like we sit around a table. Or they didn't pose like Da Vinci's picture. That was a, that's a beautiful picture, but it has no uh, credibility in history. They reclined, leaning to the left so they could serve themselves with their right hand, and they are reclining there. And Jesus arose unannounced, never said a word, for humility is always unannounced. Somebody said, I'm going to write a book, How to Be Proud and Proud of It, How to Be Humble and Proud of It. Humility is never announced. He didn't say, okay, guys, since you won't do it, I'll do it. And he didn't say something like this, gentlemen, hold out your feet. I want to show you how you're supposed to act. Humility is always unannounced, I repeat. And without saying a word, he took this towel and he began to wash their feet. 
my translation has a little asterisk by it when it says, and he came to Peter, and the indication is he started washing the feet of the men around the room, but he was destined and headed towards Simon Peter because he needed the example the most. When he came to Simon Peter, Peter said literally from the Greek language, Lord, you my feet do you wash, and it's constructed in the Greek such as this, like this, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? And the obvious answer Peter expected was, not if you don't want me to, or no, I want. Because Simon Peter, for, that mo- for Simon, it was an embarrassing moment. He didn't want his pride to be exposed. He could wash his own feet. For Peter had not yet learned, now watch this, that humility is the ability to receive without embarrassment. Humility is the ability to receive without embarrassment. There's a man by the name of James Frog, parentheses, Sullivan. And he's written a little book entitled, The Frog Who Never Became a Prince. This is, what he's, this is, this is the story. Frog spent his life working with high school students, always serving, always doing. And one day his wife, Carolyn, broke mentally, had a nervous breakdown, had to be hospitalized. Psychologically, Frog was hurting. He, he was a broken man, full of questions, even resentment toward God. After admitting her to the hospital, he returned home to his children, Scott and Kathy, for the first time they saw their father cry. As the days turned into weeks, Frog had to learn how to receive. Meals were brought to the house. People came and cleaned the house, expressed with words and deeds that they cared. They did babysitting a while Carolyn was improving. Frog learned how to receive. He said, The thing that destroys a good many of us in our Christianity is our inability to relate to each other in a warm, honest, compassionate sort of way. Even with those to whom I was close, I found I was busy being a doing Christian. And I forgot what God called me to be. I forgot that a Christian was supposed to let someone love him. I thought he was also always supposed to be loving someone else. I didn't even think about receiving to let someone love me. I thought you were adequate if you could love others and inadequate if you could let them love you. Good things begin to happen in my life when I begin to realize how much I needed the love of other Christians around me. I was loved and I begin to realize that God is the one who gives and we are the ones who receive. A long time ago, I wrote in the index of my New Testament these words. The distinctive nature of Christianity is that It compels the individual to receive. You're not going to wash my feet because if I let you do this for me, I'll have to admit that I need you and I'll have to let you love me. Never me, not my feet. 
And if you think that meekness is a synonym for a doormat or a milkitose, you look at the response Jesus gave to Simon. He said, okay, Simon, have it your way. You don't let me wash your feet. You'll have no part with me. And so Simon had a second thought, and he said, well, give me a bath. Okay, just wash me all over. Then Jesus said, no, you don't need a bath. In other words, Jesus doesn't tell us you must be born again and again and again and again. I guess you could say, once saved, always saved. If you were a Baptist, you could say that. <laughs> once saved, always saved. He said to Simon, no, you have had, you are clean, not all of you, referring to Judas, but you are, you are clean, you don't need to be Rebathed, you just need the cleansing of the feet. Now, my mother used to call that a spit bath. Now, that is a gross, a gross and crude way of saying it. You know what a spit bath is, don't you? It's like taking a washcloth and you know and washing somebody off. In the case of my mother, she'd spit literally. You talk about gross. She. She'd spit on her hand, her finger, and then start rubbing on, you know, some little spot on me. Huh? And got, got a little spot off and left 50 million germs right there on her spit, right on my hand. And, and so Jesus said to Simon, no, listen, Simon, here's the, here's the whole thing in a nutshell. You need to understand that you need the daily cleansing of the daily walk. And you can hear a pin drop in that room, kind of like now and here. And Jesus got up and he said, Now do you know what I've done to you? It's a rhetorical question. It's a question not, not given to get an answer. It's a question to stimulate thought. It's like, think about just what you have seen. Do you know what you've seen? Do you know what I have shown you? Do, you? do you know what I have modeled? I've given you an example. And he said, just as I have done, I've washed your feet. Now, if you didn't read any further, you're just going to say, then you need to wash my feet. But he didn't say that. He said, as I have washed your feet, look at the guy next to you. And become that kind of meek and humble person that bows down to wash his. I was preaching a series of meetings in Fresno, California. And I came in there a week after this church had a race relations Sunday. And this preacher told me about one of the most thrilling things he's ever experienced in his life. He said he had this black preacher from Fresno come in and preach, had preached that Sunday night before our services began on the next Sunday. And he said this black preacher was up there preaching. He said, I was sitting over in the pulpit chair. And he said, un, un, unbeknownst to me, he said, before the service, he put a basin of water underneath the pulpit and he's writing a Miller sermon while I was sitting up there on the pulpit chair in all my glory. He pulled that basin of water out. And he came over and he knelt down at my feet 
took off my shoes and socks. Thank the Lord he said I had on clean socks. He took off my shoes and my socks and before God and my, my church, he knelt on his knees and washed my feet. Started to do that tonight with Mark. He said, I'm glad, I, he said, I'm glad you didn't. And he got up, he said, he said, this black guy got up and he looked around at everybody and he said, now, do you know what I've done for you? I've modeled what it means to be like Jesus. And so he stood and he said, now, this is what you're to do. This is how you're to live. Not that you go around washing people's feet. You become this person. You somehow reach this place in life where you're able to, to be meek, gentle, and humble in heart. Stooping to serve. That's what he modeled. And those men around that room, around that table, never got that out of their mind, I promise you. A group of Harvard sociologists a few years back decided they would do a kind of an economic investigation and an economic class as to what was the most effective way to change lives. Do you know what the most effective way to change lives they came up with? The number one way to affect change in people is to model it. And therefore I know the value of hard work because I saw my father model it. He worked six days a week. The only day in his work was Sunday. And I know the meaning of unselfishness because I've seen my mother model it. And I know what it means to give because I saw my parents give with joy. And had we been around this table, we would have never been able to get this out of our mind. And that's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Be clothed with humility. And the word he uses there for clothed is a word literally meaning tie with a knot. And it referred to the knot a slave tied when he tied the towel around his waist. And so Peter wrote years later, this is how you're to live. Put the towel around you of humility. Now we, know we stop a lot of times at verse 15. But verses 16 and 17 give us the application of this whole story. And there are really two application, implications of it. One has to do with love and the other has to do with humility. I want you to jot these down and we're out of here. Uh, Nancy and Tanya are not skating again tonight, are they? Okay, we're not, we must not be in a hurry. Uh, one has to do with love and the other has to do with humility. What he taught us about love was this. Number one, that perfect love. He said he loved them to the end. He loved them perfectly. Perfect love is more than just saying the words. Randall and I have been talking a lot of late about the practicality of James, the book of James. 
And our agreement is, the agreement I think that most of us have, and that is, is that it's easy to come on Sunday and say something. It's a different thing to do it on Monday. And it's easy to talk about love. We use that word loosely. I love you. I love this. And we talk about how we love people. But perfect love is more than just saying the words. As a matter of fact, Jesus never said, I love you to anybody. I've asked you to challenge me on that. Find it in the Bible and I'll retract and apologize. Nobody's ever done it. He never looked at anybody and said, I love you, because he knew that's too easy for folks. I mean, that's an easy way out. But what he did do was he modeled what it means to love someone. He took a towel and he ministered to their, ner- to their dirt and their need. And so there's more than just love with words. It's love with actions and deeds. And John says, John says, who wrote this apostle, my little brothers, don't just love in words and verbiage, deeds and actions. He taught us the second thing about love. And that is that it's best expressed, it's expressed unconditionally to people who don't really deserve it. Simon Peter, you think he deserved having his feet washed? (laughs) Not at all. And yet Jesus headed straight to him because he wanted to show that the person who deserved it least was the person who would get it first. He taught us something about humility. Two things. First, He taught us that humility is revealed by acknowledging the greatness of others. Look at that one more time in the the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. He says, Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Verse 16, Neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And what he's saying is this, the The reality of humility is this. Not only does he wash the feet of his disciples, but he recognizes that the Father is the greater of all, the greatest of all. So Paderewski was invited to play Beethoven's piano. His response was, the only one worthy to play this piano is not Second, happiness results in demonstrating humility toward others. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you do them. You know, the happiest people in this, in my opinion, humble and accurate opinion, are the people who have no problem bending down and washing feet. The happiest people in this world are the people who, in, who, in, who find the joy of life in the serving of others. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, we pray that you'll give us a heart that is willing to do what ever needs to be done to relieve the suffering and lift the burden of others. And help us to understand that there is no joy in this life being ministered unto. But the joy of life comes in the ministering to others. In the name of your dear Son, who taught us how to love and how to serve, even Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now there might be some tonight who need to come on profession of faith, maybe to come and place your life in a church ministry and discipline, or to rededicate yourself to Christ. While we stand to sing, we invite your response. <clears throat>